welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview saxophonist, composer, arranger, and educator from East Lansing, Michigan, Diego Rivera. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Diego Rivera with us. Thank you for joining us, sir. Leander, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Can you give the people a short summary about yourself if they don't know about you? Sure. Um, I'm 5'10". Uh, sometimes I'm between 170 and 180 pounds. I got a really bad outside jump shot. Uh, I, I ran a under a five flat at 40, but I'm sure that's much higher now. Um, other than that, I'm currently, uh, you know, associate professor of jazz saxophone and associate director of jazz studies at Michigan State University. In addition to, um, you know, one of my lifelong dreams of, of becoming a, a professional jazz musician and recording artist, uh, I record with um, Positone Records and I'm a Van Doren performing artist and, um, I like to, you know, share my music with whoever's willing to listen. And these days, um, you know, it, it seems people are more and more eager to have something in their ear. Um, you know, I, I started out, uh, I'm, I'm originally from East Lansing, Michigan, where I teach at Michigan State University. So I'm, I'm kind of a, a homegrown talent, if you will. Um, my parents were both migrant workers. Um, and their families split time in between Texas and Michigan. You know, they would spend Texas in the, in the, uh, in the wintertime. And then they would come to Michigan during the harvest and, and work the fields. And, and, um, eventually both of their families settled in Michigan. And my mother settled in a town called Pinconning, which is a little north of Bay City, uh, and Saginaw where Sonny Stitt was originally from. And uh, my father settled, my father's family settled in um, uh, Albion, kind of like the, the mid-Michigan area. And my grandfather was a dairy farmer. So that's where they went to, um, you know, elementary school and high school. And my parents were both some of the first Chicanos, uh, Mexican-Americans to be recruited to Michigan State University in the 70s. Um, my mother... Uh, receiving her bachelor's, my father graduating with honors in mathematics, and he decided to become a physician. Um, he was actually accepted to Harvard Medical, but he decided on Michigan State University because they allowed him to do, that's right, <laughs> they allowed him to do a, a community outreach and community service as an undergrad or as a, while he was a, a medical student. So that's, that's kind of like what influenced his decision. Um, so my father became a, a physician. My mother, um, became a librarian and, um, um, you know, worked for the MSU, um, libraries for over 40 years. She recently retired and, um, yeah. And I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan. I met a gentleman by the name of Andrew Spate, mm -hmm. who was one of the first, if not the first, um, non-U.S. born finalist in the monk competition in 91 so there was uh joshua redman um 
I believe Eric Alexander, Chris Potter were two and three. Tim Warfield and uh, Andrew Spate were were amongst the finalists. And uh, he was teaching at Michigan State University. And when I heard him, I mean, it was, I mean, it was, that was it. That was the guy I needed to, to study with. Um, in addition to Andrew Spate, there was also a young bass player from Detroit who was playing with Roy Hargrove. And I learned that this guy was starting to teach at Michigan State University. And I said, man, you know, you know, being, being a child in the 90s, you know, um, or being a fan of jazz in the 90s, I mean, you wanted to be around anybody that was in Roy Hargrove's band. So that's the first time that I met Rodney Whitaker who was uh, starting his his career at Michigan State. So, you know, I auditioned at a few other schools, but, um, you know, and as much as I wanted to leave home, um, Michigan State just had too much to offer. And so that began my association um, with that university. And, um, yeah, and so, so that's those are my humble beginnings. First thing I'd ask you, so coming from a doctor's son, yourself, mm-hmm. He was cool with you going into jazz? You know, my father worked so hard to be able to do what he did. You know, um, you know, this was the 70s, so there were still feelings of, you know, well, Pedro, you know, my, my dad, you know, well, Pedro, you know, professors telling him, you know, wouldn't, you know, you should get, uh, uh, you should shoot for a good foreman job or a manual labor job or, you know, you're, you're bright, you could be, you have good leadership skills, you know, you could be the head of a concrete factory or foreman on a, on an auto line or something like that. And my father's like, what? You know, so he wanted to become a math professor, but he wanted to affect more change in his community, specifically in the Mexican-American community. So he decided to become a physician instead. Um, so my father and my mother, I think they wanted me to be able to do whatever it is that I wanted to do because they were still in a generation where um, they never felt like truly they were able to pursue what they wanted to do and they did what they had to do. You know what I mean? No, I, I fully understand that, but that's why I was curious because Dr. Sun right here, I have other friends that same thing, hence why I was curious about that. Yeah, and that that's that's what he wanted for me. I mean, for me honestly, it it came down to those two decisions. It was it was between music and and medicine. Um you know, and and um music was just something I could not live without. And so I said if I can't live without it, I'm just going to go full force. I I didn't do um, you know, an education degree as a backup. I didn't try to, you know, take you know, organic and inorganic chem, just as, you know, maybe I wanted to matriculate to, to medical school. I mean, I just went full force music all the way. Um, and, and I, and I later came to find out that, you know, I think it, it's, it was very interesting choice for me because, um, even though it was very different than, you know, going into medicine, like my father, um, you know, he, he got into medicine at a time where there were very few Chicanos graduating, you know, from medical school, um, you know, uh, entering into their own practice or just entering the medical field. And, um, and I think, you know, at Michigan State, we have quite a few Latino students. 
And I think we've been able to um, attract, recruit, and retain Latino students just simply because we have Latino faculty. And so I serve as kind of like a role model, as an example for other students. They say, well, I don't really see a place for myself in the music. You know, um, you know the, the, the creators of the music predominantly you know, African-American, you know, um, black Americans and, and you know, um, um, folks from African descent from the Caribbean and, and all over the place. And, you know, there's a lot of, of course, there's a contribution of, of, of um, you know, white Americans, folks from, you know, uh, Europe. And you know, there's just sometimes the, the Latino influence goes unnoticed, especially to students who are trying to get learn more about jazz. And so I think... Um, well, how you many know, do you I, have roughly in the program now? Oh, boy. Um, we have a program of about 70. It fluctuates every year. There's there's probably about 10 or 12, if not more. In some years, it, it goes up. You know, recruitment is always... There's, it's not an exact science. <laughs> no, fully understood. It's crazy. But, um, but yeah. Um, and since we're talking about universities now... How about you tell me, how has this whole situation the past year affected Michigan State? Oh, man. Um, well, yourself. you know, yeah, I mean, teaching jazz online is <laughs> is like trying to teach <laughs> jazz online. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we went remote or to virtual instruction probably about, you know, just, just over a year ago. And um, so this has spanned really... You know, this has touched three semesters of school, and it's been really difficult for for um, for some things to keep intact. First of all, the students have been great. I mean, you know, they didn't ask for this. There's no way to prepare for this, and they've responded just absolutely wonderfully. There's still, um, you know, it's a renewed a lot of faith in me in 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 the students and the young people's love for this music. Like I always knew it was there, but seeing them go through something like this and seeing them still learn solos and get into the music and, and, and creating musical. I have a lot of students that are doing, you know, virtual projects on their own. Um, you know, just anything just to, to be able to, to, um, to interact with one another and play music, you know, it's, it's been really inspiring. So, you know, I, I saw that early. So I, I just put everything that I had into creating, whatever you want to call this experience, online, virtual, hybrid, I mean, however you want to call it. Um, I put everything that I had into trying to make this the best experience for them because, you know, um, I didn't want them to lose that fire. And, um, you know, so everything has been remote. We're starting to come out of this. We're starting to do rehearsals with a few ensembles uh, in person. Um a couple lessons, you know, folks that can remain masked up the whole time. So obviously not the wind players, but, um, you know, piano, bass and drums, guitar. Um, I think a few of those folks have, have done some lessons in person, but, um, you know, I think we're coming back and, and, um, you know, the first rehearsal that we had in person with the octet, I, I direct, um, uh, our top jazz octet. And the first rehearsal we had, man, it was it was emotional. It was emotional just to not only hear live music, but to hear live music performed by some of your students. You know, it's it's almost like, you know, seeing your kids after a long time. 
it's um it was it was inspiring and the band got really good really quick you know and they love playing with each other i mean the the program here is like a family you know i always say you know um we don't really do jazz education at msu we we teach jazz culture and jazz education is a part of real jazz culture so we don't need to create something that's you know auxiliary to jazz culture you know um jazz education is already a part of it and it's a part of what we do it's a part of you know um passing on the music it's a part of of living your life out as a jazz musician so it's been um you know it's it's been a, a tremendous experience both you know on the positive and the and okay. the regrettable sides so any of your students doing big magical things right now in the jazz world um yeah you know um one of my graduates recent graduates um marcus howell has had just joined the count basie orchestra nice. so he 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 graduated and um you know he'd been working with, a little bit with them um while he was finishing up his his grad work he was just you know it's the best case scenario you just you you want your students to finish with their feet pointed directly out the door you know and um Oh, you know, it's good, incredible. Man. That's my incredible. That's first, <laughs> my first, uh, my first grad student ever, mm-hmm. just won his third Grammy, I believe, with his band Snarky Puppy. And uh, wait, 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 wait. Chris Bullock is your former student. Yeah, he was my first graduate student at Michigan State. And and I remember when he he left. MSU and he went down to North Texas and uh and I I you know just gave him a phone I keep in touch with the, you know all my former students so I I gave him a call and he says hey Diego yeah I just just joined this band man you know we're we're just kind of doing weddings and stuff like that I mean it's not you know it's not necessarily you know like straight ahead like Dexter and I'm like man you're working baby you know that that's all I can ask for you know one so what's the name of the band? And he says, uh, so well, we call it, it's, it's called Snarky Puppy. And I was like, well, that's, that's got to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. I mean, you know, like, that's like, these, shows you how much I know. Yeah. No, that is, so he got there at the right time when he was putting the band together in North Texas. And now he's yeah. on his third one. Yeah. We had one of the guests that came on that is a member of the band. And yes, the live album I thought was great. Have you at least it's seen them live? Yeah, yeah, they they were on tour here, and our student group, uh, one of our student organizations, mm-hmm. um, actually got enough money together, and they fundraised, and they you know, and um, they got in touch with um, with their booking agent, and was able to 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 route a band through East Lansing. So all my students were able to check them out, and you know, it was, it was good to catch up with Chris. I think it was before they won their first Grammy. Like right before, okay. So, um, you know, um, no, that's yeah, that was that was really special. That band and their story is amazing. I gotta try to get oh, Michael man. on one time, but yeah, dude, yeah. that's that's how you know you made it as a professor, man. <laughs> <laughs> and like we were saying before, as much as I have a love hate relationship with the Grammys, still winning one is impressive. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I'm. You know, um, I'm just so happy for for 
you know, for all of my students' accomplishments, just because, you know, becoming a jazz major, it's such a leap of faith. It's such a leap of faith because, you know, if, if you know, I, as their instructor and as a professional musician myself, I know what it leads to. You know, I know what it can be. And so when I listen to a student, I don't listen to them where they are, you know, at that moment. I say, well, this is where they're going to be in four years, you know, or this is where they're going to be in two years. And I, and my job is to push them and also try to do my best to give them a glimpse of where they're going to be in four years. So they get more excited and they, they're like, okay, this is a real possibility. So that's why a lot of times, you know, we, we're taking our students on gigs. I have at least one or, you know, when I do gigs locally here, I, I have at least one student on my gig so that I can show them, you know, um, it's not all about, you know, not every gig is an exposure gig and they don't have to, you know, um, Play to the lowest common denominator. I don't know anything about the Michigan scene. Are there really exposure gigs over there? I mean, there's no exposure gigs anywhere. The only thing exposure gigs lead to are more exposure gigs. Yeah, this would be great exposure. I said, yeah, I'm definitely exposing. I'm exposing my bank account to you. Like how much, how little I'm getting for this gig. But you know, you know, we take them and we take them on tour and. You know, um, they go into a place and they're treated with respect and dignity and, you know, um, you know, they they realize that there's a life as a as a musician where it's possible just to spend your life thinking about music and only music where you don't have to, you know, worry about it. And, and it's wonderful. And so you get students on some of those and then and then they come back and they they practice even harder. And they they become, you know, more resolute about re achieving their goals and being like, you know, this is what I want. This is, you know, I want to lead this life of being a musician and, and you know, catching planes and meeting people and playing for the people, and, you know, talking to folks afterwards and changing somebody's day. You know, it's a leap of faith because students don't necessarily see that when they start and they move into their dorm room on their freshman year. So, um, so what you do know... You what do you think students should expect when they graduate then, in general? When they graduate, I mean, that's when the work begins. That's when the work begins. You know, they're, they're going to school to learn how to learn. Um, even if students get a gig right out of school, you know, even if they, they link up with a band and so they have to learn in school how to keep that gig. So they got to learn to be responsible. They got to learn how to digest music in a very short period of time and make it sound like music. They got to learn how to interact with other musicians, um, uh, not only musically, but socially. They have to learn how to be good citizens. They got to learn how to be encouraging. They got to learn how to take criticism. They got to learn how to take instruction. They got to learn, you know, that, um, you know, um, that they're, artistic voices aren't infallible, you know, that they're, that they don't always, they're not the only ones that are allowed to have a good idea, you know? And if you do that, you're going to go very far. You're going to get some real opportunities. You're going to learn how to work. You're going to learn how to interact with people. You're going to learn how to, how to be cool on the gig. You're going to learn how to, you know, be responsible, show up on time, um, you know, pay musicians their respect, you know, um, 
you know, musicians, you know, we work hard, you know, a, a lot of times putting together books, writing songs, thinking of material, you know, putting together a show, a narrative. And, um, you know, at a certain point, everybody can play. At I a certain point, I everybody can play. Anyone could read, anyone could play, everyone could yeah. feel it. Right. So it's not a, I mean, not every gig is a contest. I mean, if the, if the greatest saxophone player in the world, you know, is the only one to ever get gigs, I mean, <laughs> what's the point of me becoming a jazz musician? <laughs> you know, it's just like... But that's another way that, <laughs> you don't feel there are less gigs for saxophone players now? I don't know, man. I, I, I kind of live in a bubble sometimes. I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's obviously gigs that I want that I can't have. Like well, there's obviously, oh man! Like yes, I would love Branford Marcellus's gig, but I can't <laughs> <Okay>. have it. <laughs> okay, you know that's fair. You know, um, but I can't have it. You know, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to have any gigs. You know, I'm I. I um, are you more in an academia bubble, or are you more in a I'm seasoned bubble? I, I think I'm I'm more in 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 a perception bubble. I mean, I may just live in Shangri-La. You know, I mean, I I teach on faculty with Rodney Whitaker, Xavier Davis, you know, AT and Charles, Michael Dees, Randy Napoleon, and Randy Gillespie, a, a drummer that that toured with Wes Montgomery and Sonny Stitt. You yes, know, I'm... so like if that's my my academic <laughs> bubble, I know that's unrealistic. Like, not not every faculty is is I'm like I'm like very that, yeah yeah and and but um. You know, there's always more gigs, but but not every gig is my gig. I, I realize that even though I can't have every gig, I know there's still gigs out there for me. I just need to go find which gigs are out there for me, you know, and, and make the most of them. They may not be in New York. They may not be even in Michigan. I may, you know, find a, 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 a network of people that I like working with in, in Ohio or, you know, I, I'm also... Um, a member of the um, Dr. Phillips Jazz Orchestra in um, in Orlando, Florida. So I've been, you know, before this all went down, I had been traveling to Florida almost every other month, if not every month. And I would do a gig with the orchestra, and then I would, you know, meet other musicians in the area. And I started to do gigs in in, in Central Florida. Um, I have friends on the, the east coast of Florida, you know, down by Miami. So, you know... And it's about making music. It's, um, you know, the, you know, I want recognition and I would like accolades, but I don't need them. You know, I, I just need to make music. You know, if, if I have a room of 50 people, it's, you know, I got something to say. I, I can, I can change their life. I can, I can better their day. I can, you know, make them think with, um, with the narrative of, of whatever project I'm working on. There's always some, you know, I'm a teacher, so I'd, I have to teach and I have to educate on the gig. You know, I gotta, I gotta, it's, it's, it's always been way more than just, just music. You know, like, uh, I think I heard great comedian, I'm also a fan of comedy. You know, I heard a great comedian, somebody said, I think it was Chappelle, um, that said, you know, comedy has never just been about telling jokes. That is true. Yeah. And Chappelle has a skit with him playing jazz piano. And if you see <laughs> yeah. Bad PR skills. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you brought up the bands. Let's me ask him. So, when you see Zoloins and his big band, 
I love mm-hmm. him for doing that. I love his project where he helps the youth and he puts them together to play with him. Yeah. How do you do? You see big bands dying in general? Do you see? Uh, let's let's just start with that. What do you think of um, big bands dying? Because I I don't know. Again, maybe I'm I'm living Shangri La or a bubble. You know, there was a period in the first ten years maybe around the teens of the of the 2000s uh-huh. where you know I um I started playing with Michael Dees in his big band and it seemed like you know every club on Monday night in New York had a had a big band there was a big band everywhere so you know and and before that you know I I didn't know of of as many big bands I know there's more younger people starting big bands there's a lot of 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 younger cats you know uh going through school and and falling in love with falling in love with arranging, um, you know, um, and, and wanting to find an outlet for that, you know, so they either start a big band or they write for big bands, you know, and, um, you know, if a big band has great music, that's, it's pretty good odds that they're going to keep on working. Um, you know, so I just, I see more of them. I, you know, from my financial aspect, you know, everybody's having a tough time. I mean, if, if you want to step outside of jazz, I mean, you know, small businesses are having a tough time. You know, I mean, everybody's having, everybody's struggling in some way. I mean, the, the wealth gap is just getting larger and larger and larger. So this is not just with, with, with jazz music. I mean, there's, I mean, there's a problem with our, with our culture and wealth distribution and, and, and fairness and, you know, all of those sort of things. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. Having said that, you know, I think people will still write. I think people will still have big bands. I think still people will still do what it is that they need to do if they have this, you know, creative urge and a need to get it out. But also, you know, I, th- I think if, if they're smart about it, um, they won't do it, you know, you know, at the expense of financial ruin, you know. Yeah, you know, they won't I go don't think Yeah, but no. the way I see it is a lot of the younger artists or not getting a lot of those first gigs. That's that's why I think, you know, folks like Ulysses and and even myself um we take mentorship very very um seriously. You know, I, I think that there's been um kind of a, a a disconnect. There's there's a few musicians who really embrace that Rodney Whitaker being one um you know, um you know, Winton also, you know, starting to, and has for a long time, you know, bring younger musicians uh, into his band. Um, you know, we see that, that's that's the legacy that we see ourselves as. You know, we want to be a part of that, of of the mentorship, you know. Um, you know, Art Blakey the Jazz Messengers, Horace Silver's bands, you know, um, those sort of things. You know, I mean, that's one of been, that's been one of the great traditions of jazz is that there's always been mentorship. You know, Miles played in Bird's band. Um, you know, Train played in Miles' band. You know, McCoy played in Train's band. You know, okay. you know, it just you know just keeps on going on. It's a, it's a legacy that um that I think you know is very important that we're that we're a part of. So, well, what would you tell someone going into music right now with everything going on? At least over here, there's some jazz clubs. We're not sure if they're going to open up again. Mm-hmm. What would you? Suggest to them. 
I mean, jazz clubs and festivals, I mean, festival directors and, and jazz club owners, they, they come and go. I mean, it's been, you know, musicians that will be here forever, you know? I mean, unless you're someone like George Ween, you know, <laughs> you, know um, you know, the Iron Man of jazz festivals. Um, you know, the music will never die. I mean, I think it's it's entrenched itself well enough within the fabric, within the the culture of 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 um, of the artistic scene, of the American culture scene, if you want to even call it, if we even have a culture. Um, you know, there will be opportunities. You know, you may not win a Grammy, but you would still make a life. You can still make a living. I think it's important to be able to, I mean, what it means to be a jazz musician, especially in the 21st century, is not the same as what it meant even 20, 30 years ago. So, you know, at MSU, what, what we do is we make sure that students graduate and they they know how to teach. Like I teach jazz pedagogy class. So I make sure they understand not only how to teach, but what it means to the music, how important mentorship and how much, how important, you know, uh, teaching is to the legacy of the music. Um, they have to be able to teach. They have to be able to arrange. Um, they have to be able to to have a narrative, to to be able to to speak about their music, to um, you know craft a story, to take something out of society that they see, and 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 put a soundtrack to it. I mean, that's that's really what I see myself as. As I look at things, you know, going on around me, and I try to put the soundtrack to that. You know, jazz has been the soundtrack to my life. So, um, you know, that's what I encourage students to do. And if you do that, and if you do it to a very high level, um, you know, there will be work. There will be opportunities. Um, you know, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be very difficult. But, I mean, why would you want to ever do anything else if this is really, really what you want to do? You know, what is something that, if not your students, just people you meet in general, misunderstand about the music world? Um, you know, they say, well, you know, it's not very secure. I mean, nothing is really secure at this point. Um, that there's I very totally little, agree with you. <laughs> there's very little security. Um, um, I think folks may not realize exactly, you know, how much we love this music and what actually goes into it. There's a reason that I think so many musicians start young. It's it's very rare that you get somebody who's older, you know, a lot more mature starting and getting into jazz. Not to say that doesn't happen, but it's rare and it's really difficult. I think there's so much you have to learn about yourself to become a musician. There's so many things that you have to kind of like go through and kind of like surrender about yourself um, that line up perfectly with adolescence. You know, you think about your own playing, you think about the way that you perceive your own voice as an artist. I mean, it lines up perfectly like when you're 18, 19 year old trying to figure out who you are about yourself. So I think a lot of those experiences to become a musician um, to becoming a musician, line up perfectly with, you know, who you are as a person, 
you know, you, you, you spend a lot of time with you and you learn about yourself a lot. You know, I always tell my students, you know, the practice room at your age is probably one of the most sacred places for you for a number of reasons. First of all, if you play something, you play something 10 times and you get to that 10th time, it's just you and that instrument and your, and your standard, your standard of excellence in that room. You play it on that 10th time, you know, you're faced with that question. Is that good enough? Do I consider that good enough? What does that say about me? I hear something. Should I play it five more times just to make sure? Or am I just going to walk away from it and be like, that's good enough? Nobody's, you know, nobody's in the room. It's just you and that instrument and, and your conscience and your, your desire to be like, I'm going to play it five more times just to make sure that it's exactly the way I want it to be. You know, and those are things that that we go through. T- everybody goes through on, to a certain level when we're 18, 19, 20 years old. So it's not music is not something that you just kind of study and you can kind of do it at, at any point. I think to truly become an artist, it's important to go through those things. Now, it's obviously a lot harder to go through those, you know, uh, self-realizations and kind of have those inner dialogues with yourself when you're like, you know, 53 years old than it is 19 years old, you know. Um, But I think, you know, um, the idea of music being somebody's life work, it's very literal. It's it's not an expression. It's really your life experiences, you know, losing a family member and still having to go into the practice room and what that means to you, you know, kind of like always constantly redefining what music means in your life. Those experiences, I think, you know, the the things that are out of sight, out of mind, uh, those are what, you know, non-musicians may not not understand. I give you that. I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) But the only thing I would think why a lot of older people don't just pick up an instrument is because the time factor. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it, too. That's part of it, too. You know, know, when you get older, um, you know, your, your time just gets you know, redistributed, you know, like I tell students, not like students, now they say, man, I can't wait to graduate. I won't have this math class to deal with. I can't, you know, I've, I never have to deal with this math class, you know, um, ever again. I think uh, I'll be cool. And I, and I remind them, I say, well, you won't have a math class, but something will take that place. You know, it may not be a math class that you're dealing with, but that's two hours a day of emails and, you know, working on your website and, you know, fielding phone calls and making sure your purchase orders for your CD or your merchandise or that's in, or that's, you know, you may not have a, a social studies class, you know, but instead of that, you know, that's, that's an hour every day that you're going to, to, to the, to your copyist, you know, or to the copy store, printing out parts for the gig, you know, updating your books and, you know, something just takes that time. And, and if you don't kind of make practicing a part of your life, or if you don't take you know, make um, time to to work on your music, your musicianship, call it practicing or whatever it is, you know. Um, if that's not a part of your daily life early, it's very hard to fit that in later. So I agree, the time thing is, is, is tough to negotiate, you know, because things just get replaced. We don't really get any less busy. We don't, our, our schedules don't really free up. We just kind of substitute things with different, with different things, you know. It, it's not, you know, well, I have my friends and I want, I need to keep this social relationship together. You know, I, 
And I want to, you know, I, I want to hang out with them two, three hours a night. You know, once I started a family, you know, I like my kids. You know, I like hanging out with them. I, I love so. them, you know. <laughs> you know, some people don't, man. It's it's rough, you know, oh. but I actually, <laughs> I like my kids. I like, you know, they're 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 great, you know, little people. And, and uh, people. you know, and they are, they're, they're, it's, it's, it's bizarre. It's wild, you know? So rather than hanging out with my friends, you know, I got to, I have, you know, my family that I need to hang out with. So it's not just like I come home and I'm just down here in the basement, you know, running patterns. Not that I run patterns anyway. Okay. So since you brought that up and I had a conversation, like a three part conversation with this guy the other day, if you know who it is, don't say his name, but he kind (laughs) of messed up my head on some things. And since you mentioned the time factor and just the ordering the music, the websites. If a kid came out of your graduate program and was offered to sign with a record label, would you tell him to go independent or would you tell him to go to the label? I mean, I, I would tell him just to take a look at it and if it's what they want to do. If it aligns with what they want to do at that point, go ahead and do it. If it doesn't, you know, um, find something else to do. Respectfully decline. So, you know, I look forward to working with you in the future at this time. It's just, you know, I don't, I don't, I hope I stay on your radar, but, you know, I just, I think I need to go another direction. Um, You know, with Positone, they want to make records and they want to, they want, you know, they want to record, they want to document the process. They want to, you know, contribute to the, and that's where I am right now. I want to make a lot of records. No, I understand, because you were independent at one point. And then yeah. now you're with them, so that's why I was curious. Yeah, we're 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 cranking them out, and um, you know it's 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 been easy. You know they're so encouraging that you know it's just really inspired me. And, and you know I'm just I'm writing every day, man. Not that I wasn't before, but but it's it feels like it has. You know, I'm connecting the passes with some receivers now. So. Um, but some folks, that's 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 not what they want to do. They want to do a record every three years. They want to do something, you know, a larger, overarching project, you know, or maybe they want to do one record and they just want to play. They just want to do gigs and they want to work and, you know, um, uh, and they don't want that interrupted with, you know, records and projects, which, you know, take a considerable amount of energy. Um, but that's where I am. I want to play, but I also want to be writing and, I'm, you know, I have all this... That's just where I am at this time. So uh, this was the perfect opportunity for me at the time. Um, and for students, you know, they got to think about, is this the right thing for me? Or, um, you know, is is this something that, that'll turn into something later? You know, do I, should I focus on creating a body of work now? Um, should, is this gonna, how does this balance with, with the other things that I want to do? You know, I want to try to go and play with people. I want to try to get in people's bands. I want to try to spend my energy doing this, or I want to, there's this initiative. I want to go and try to teach somewhere, you know? So it's, it's, it's not a, a cut and dry thing. It really has to do with if it aligns with where they're at, where their headspace is and where their direction is. So if someone, if Positon would just use them because you're with them. If they said that you had to do a 10-year contract at this point in your career, would you do it? As long as I could just keep on making music, yeah. Okay. Because at least in other dramas and music, I know, like, if they get, they start hitting, they start doing big, a lot of people want out of their contracts. Mm -hmm. And I know that 
hurts the record label because they invested all that time and money in you. And so I just wanted to know your take on that, I should say. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 about a relationship and, you know, I mean, everything starts with a conversation. You know, everything starts with a conversation. I mean, if I got to a point where where I felt like, you know, our our interests weren't aligned, you know, um, we got to talk it out. We got to talk it out. And, and, and you know, I, I've been, you know, I've been surprised a lot of times if, um, you know, I may have been nervous about something and I said, well, man, I, I just, you know, I'm really nervous about having this conversation with this person or these people or this, you know, whatever it is. But if I approach it with honesty, um, you know, um, I've I've been surprised. It's like, well, you know, this isn't the best situation for us, but we understand. You know, you've you've been you've been honest, so you know we'll do the right thing and we'll let you go, or you know we'll part ways, or or we'll you know you're right. We'll we'll throw more support your way, or you know we'll do what we need to do to make you happy. Um, and that's you know I, I've. I don't know. It just it it seems to work for me. Maybe just because I'm just the way I carry myself, or 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 the way I behave. Um, people know that that I'm usually coming from a place of of honesty. They usually say, "Well, you know, there's there's no ulterior motives there. You know, what 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 he says is what he means." I'm just maybe I'm I'm just not smart enough to play mind games. No, no, so no. So all is- all I'm left is with all I'm left with is is honesty, just dead honesty. So okay, just like I said, came up. I was thinking about it, and that conversation had me thinking a lot of different stuff the other day. So yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So we were talking about let's go to the actually let's go to the album. Okay, your new album. Sure. Love it. It's Thank different, you. though, because with you, I don't know what I'm going to get, which is something <laughs> I like. Because some of your albums are like, I don't want to say, I don't even know the term, just like more of a traditional Mexican vibe. Like, I think that I'm in the Aztecs going mm-hmm. on, listening to stuff. And then some of them are heavy, heavy swing. Right. And one of the first things I heard from, about, I mean, if I first heard about you was, it, was this... I should say, uh, Dirty Dog Jazz Cafe posted mm-hmm. a video of you. That was hard. I loved it. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. I go looking up at your, some of the other stuff, and then I got, uh, what was that, uh, five years <laughs> mm-hmm. when it was slower. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, so what makes you write the way you write? I'm just curious. <laughs> um, I mean, who I'm, who I'm listening to inspires who I'm who what I write um who I'm playing with who I've played with um you know my my writing really is just a a a manifestation of whatever's in my head at the time and and I don't limit that only to music um if there's something that I that I that I'm thinking about you know reading the newspaper about stories reading up on history, learning about my own history through conversations with my family, um, learning about my culture through other people, learning about other people's culture, whatever's in my head, in addition to whatever I'm, you know, listening to, whatever somebody's turned me on to. Um, um, 
you know, when I put pen to paper, it's, it's whatever's up there. It's whatever's upstairs here. So, um, you know, I think as my consciousness changes, my, my writing changes and, um, and, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. I'm, I'm glad that I'm able to, to write whatever's on my mind. Cause it's, it's great to go back and listen and be like, man, I was so, I was so hopeful then, you know, <laughs> you know, or, uh, or man, I was, I was dark, you know, I was, I needed a hug or something, you know, and say, so, oh, okay, on this record, I got a hug. That's nice. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's really my writing process. The other stuff, you know, the, the, the nerd stuff is just, you know, um, I mean, I listened to it, but I was just like, what, how did it come about? <laughs> So for for indigenous, this record was th- there's there's a mix of some older tunes and and some newer compositions. Um, I had been wanting to put this together. This I I had this idea for a long time of saying, you know, let's look at music from other cultures and kind of like look at them through the through the jazz lens and whatever that means. You know, whatever my idea of how how big and how broad the jazz few is um and you know one of the tunes uh astata malakiasu is a is a greek song that was um from the golden age of of greek cinema it was brought to my attention by my wife who's who's greek and from thessaloniki greece originally and this was a song that um her mother had sang to her when she was a child, this is a song that my wife sang to our kids when they were children. Um, you know, I had this really interesting experience in uh, in Greece. We went there around Christmas time, around the holidays, and we went to this little tavern there in the, in the neighborhood. And there was going to be some music. Um, music was going to be from nine until midnight, so the band obviously shows up at nine forty-five. And, uh, you know, the bazooki players sitting there, you know, smoking a cigarette and tuning his, you know, his instrument and getting ready. And so people start filtering in. The music starts around 10 and they play from 10 until about 2.30 straight. No breaks, just like tune after tune after tune. And as I'm looking around, you know, some of the songs that they're, they're playing and, you know, folks are singing, but it's not only the older folks that are singing these traditional songs. It's people my age, you know, and then people younger than me, you know, my, my younger nieces or my my younger nephews and some of my cousins, they're also kind of engaged. And so there's music in that culture that transcends generation. And in the U S we have this very huge generational problem where music is very generational. Like the idea of, well, that's my parents' music, or this is, you know, that's my kids' music. That's really strong here. It doesn't necessarily exist in other cultures, like in Brazil, like with the, with how folks interact with the samba. There's some things where everybody's Brazilian, if the music starts off. If the music starts, everybody's Greek, and everybody is, like, age just kind of like, you, it's, it's, it's not a factor. So I thought that was an interesting phenomenon. So I said, well, this is going to be interesting because this song will appeal to jazz fans because, you know, I'm looking at through a jazz lens and I'm using my, my, my instincts to play it as a, as a jazz song, but it actually mean more to people 
who are Greek, to the indigenous Greeks, because of what the song means to that culture. And so that's what, you know, inspired the idea of indigenous. So I started to look at music from all over the world and um, try to put this together. And then when I put my finger on it, then the rest of the tunes just started coming and I was able to pull out some of those old, older compositions and it all worked together in a package. And then I was ready to record it, you know, cause I'd always wanted to do it, but I just, I couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was I was trying to do. And then, you know, traveling the world and, and meeting folks from other cultures and engaging with musicians from other cultures, man, it just kind of like all put it together I and mean, meeting and being with, you know, uh, Positone and them just saying, we love the idea. Let's let's record. Let's let's get into the studio. Did they choose the bandmates for you, or did you do it? Because they're also all different, all different backgrounds. Well, I, I think they all play in uh, in the Mingus Big Band. They're all members of the Mingus Big Band, but yeah, they all have very different big uh, backgrounds. Yeah, and I loved that. Helen, um, Boris, Donald. <laughs> yeah. All I mean, I met uh, I met Donald uh, on a gig with Ellis Marcellus uh -huh. a number of years ago, and um, you know, I, I when we played, I was just like, I got to do something with this cat. This cat is just like serious. I mean, he just has so he, his range is so wide. I mean, there's nothing that this cat can't do. Um, Boris, I met through Positone, uh -huh. and. Uh, you know, again, just fantastic musician. Um, you know, he's so giving. He's just such a beautiful cat, too. I mean, he was really interested in the narrative and the story of each of the songs. So he kind of helped me bring that out. So I was explaining the story, the meaning behind. So it helped us get to a vibe. And and Helen, you know, she comes from, from so many different influences and so many... It, you know, I needed somebody that was going to be able to handle not only Stevie Wonder, but something that was straight ahead, but also, you know, something that was more Latino influence and something just like with a world, you know, uh, a consciousness, even though we weren't playing necessarily specifically those world styles. I needed somebody with with an understanding and a consciousness of, you know, where, well, the, the source material, the song comes from another culture. This is how I'm going to interpret. And Helen was the first person I thought of. So it, it worked together. And of course, obviously, you know, AT and Charles, my my cohort here, um, you know, we've played so much music together and we just think about music so similarly that, you know, some of these tunes I was just like, there's no way I need a second voice up here. And and it's ATN's voice that I'm hearing, you know, on some of these songs. So I got him. And it was funny because we played the first tune. And Helen looks over at us and he's like, you guys have done this before, haven't you? And so, yeah, you know. So, What's the first one you recorded? The first one we recorded was Sombras del Pasado. And just the way that we phrased it, and you know, it's just like he understood that there's more of a vocal quality. Like the rhythms are written out. But the way that we were phrasing it, it, was, it, was, it wasn't necessarily the way it was written. But he understands that I'm writing it like, like two men singing. In harmony, you, you know, to keep him with you for all the albums. <laughs> oh man, that's a bond that's hard to find. <laughs> we oh, it's it was incredible. We did a little gig here in in in, in Lansing, just at a coffee house. We got you know three of our students, mm -hmm. and um, um, 
We just put together, say, hey, man, let's, you want to play at a coffee house? And I'm like, coffee? Do we get free coffee? He's like, yeah. And I was like, all right, I'm there. So we, we, you know, we just had a, I had a blast. Just, you know, just played tunes all night, just played jazz. And at the end of the gig, we looked at each other and almost like in, in sync. We said, man, we got to do something together. But we got a vibe, man. You know, it's just, um, you know, we and it's, and it's, we, we spent so much, I've, I've played, had the opportunity to play in his band and, you know, um, you know, we've we've been friends for such a long time, you know, and uh think about music similarly and think about a lot of things similarly. So um, you know, it was important. Also, you know, um making the record was actually really difficult. And so it was so nice that I had such a supportive group and i mean they re- you got the sense they really wanted to, the record to be good everybody was contributing everybody was saying hey why don't we do this why don't we do this i was like that's a great idea yes you know and they they just you know people would cut into the lunch break you know and be like I, I just want let me fix this part really quick just give me a second you know you guys go and eat let me just fix this part you know people wanted the record to be good um but you know, uh, the day before is when I found out that my my homeboy, my my good friend um, from Lansing, Michigan, Lawrence Leathers, was murdered. And so, you know, as I was packing to go to New York, you know, I'm fielding phone calls and you know, crying in between, and it was it was it was heavy. It was it was tough to make the record, you know, but um um. You know, it, it helped that everyone was so supportive. There's no vibe in the room. Everybody was just so gracious and so beautiful. And I, I, I can't thank them enough. No, man. I, like I said, the group was tight. The album was tight. Like you were talking earlier about the soundtrack of your life. There's a lot of different fields on there that you got to tell. <laughs> yeah. From Biela Plaza to Sober uh, Marie. I said it right on. Hope. Hopefully I said it right. <laughs> uh, sabor, sabor a mi. Yeah, yeah, that was that was um, <laughs> that was one of my father's favorite boleros. That was one of my my father's favorite tunes. And, I felt um, that. That's all I'm saying. That's yeah. I'm saying. I I that that that's uh, that's my childhood playing those those records and, and listening to that around the house. You know, when I was growing up. Okay, at least I'm just telling you, I noticed it. So especially Thank on that you. one. <laughs> And when's the next album? The next album shall will be worked on soon. Um, once I get my two doses, um, you know, uh, I'll I'll look forward to to getting back out there and um, making my way over to to New York um, and uh, work on several projects. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of themes I don't think I've fully explored what I'm feeling with Indigenous, so there's probably going to be other songs. You know, through my research for Indigenous, I, I came across all kinds of great music, um, and it's just made me get a little bit more interested. So the, the next record will probably be, you know, similar themes. There's going to be a lot of new surprises, but similar things to, to exploring, you know, um, how myself as a jazz musician looks at, at music... Um, from indigenous cultures from all around the world and uh, how I interpret that. So uh, that's what I'm looking forward to. But, but yeah, as, as soon as it's safe for me to do so, which should be very soon, um, I'm going to get back in the studio. That also. So 
Where do you think Jazz would be in 10 years? I don't know. Someplace warm. <laughs> Someplace warm, hopefully. Hopefully. Someplace warm and, and, and low rent. <laughs> okay, um, I'm in New York at Delta Rent Park. But. <laughs> <laughs> Come to Detroit. Come to Michigan. There's, there's clubs. It's a, you know, it's a bustling scene. Sadly, you know? I'm a Lions fan, so I feel for you guys. Oh, I'm yeah. a Lions. Oh, you're a Lions fan? Yeah. You had this great running back at one point. Oh, man. <laughs> we had a great receiver, probably the greatest receiver in ever. And, and we still couldn't win and, anything. And, and we inspired <laughs> both of them to retire early. It's magical, man. I don't know. It's something about Detroit, man. I have I have this, uh, this really quick story. So, you know, when... Um, uh, after Megatron retired, mm-hmm. you know, there was a talk radio show and uh, this guy was talking. And said, what do the Lions need to do? What do the Lions need to do? You know, uh, we just lost Megatron and there's cl- callers calling in and they're saying, well, you know, they need draft picks. No, they need to trade for a quarterback. No, we need to do this. No, it's the coach. No, it's the staff. No, we need to get rid of the Fords. And so one guy calls in and he says, you know, I've been listening to the show all this morning and uh, everybody talking about how to fix the Lions. And he says, I'm a plumber. So you can imagine what my week is like. So the only, you know, comfort I receive is that, you know, the only stability in my life is that if I turn on the Lions on Sunday, that they're going to suck, that they're just going to be awful. I say, just leave them alone. I like my Lions. They stink. (laughs) They've always stunk. Just leave them alone. And he hung up and there was dead, dead silence on the air. (laughs) And the host goes, you know. He might be round to something. I mean, he might be right. From Reggie Maybe Bush. Just, from, I watch Trafford go to freaking the Rams now win a Super Bowl. That's all I'm saying. Course. And then I'm going to be like, it's definitely Detroit. Sorry. Yes. Yep. <laughs> but before I get into my feelings and how they're going to screw up this, this draft, like they screw up every draft, right. we'll go back to this and be like, <laughs> do you can't th- wait for the next lineman? Oh. Uh, <laughs> Like I said, man, you're going to get me on a rant here. You're going to trigger me. <laughs> do you think Jazz would be bigger <laughs> in 10 years? Or do you think it will be smaller in a more solid group? Um, I hope it's I hope it's bigger. Um, you know, I hope it's bigger. I hope, you know, there, you know, people get into it. And again... You know, um, it's hard to say. It's always been hard to say. It's always been hard to say. You know, the thing, it's so funny because for as generational as our society is, you know, that's my parents' thing. That's my son's thing. That's my kid's thing. You know, it's my grandparents' thing. Every generation has that. It's so funny. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's almost like an oxymoron, I guess, you know, for as, as, as separate as we feel from from generation to generation, every generation feels that. That's the thing that we have in common. That is, is that we. It's so weird. So you know, I mean, I think people have been saying that you know, jazz is is in trouble. That seems to be a pretty consistent narrative for for a long time. But you know, I I have I have a month full of gigs with some really amazing people, and you know, um, you know, and and. Uh, I just got another commit today from from an outstanding student, high school student who's excited about starting his career. Um, you know, I just had another student um, um, just get an, a teaching gig. I had another student who's looking forward to to 
getting back to touring and doing a record, you know, I've, you know, so there's always activity. Um, so, okay, you know, so. and then I have, I have other students who, who are doing things, you know, who aren't in jazz, you know, um, former jazz students that are, um, you know, uh, doing well, they went into the business field and they're just, you know, they, they're, they're just donated to a scholarship to, you know, so, I, you know, so who knows where it's going? I, I just, um, you know, I, I think, uh, I think the, the point is just to, to keep activity going, just to keep the process going, keep thinking about things and keep making music. You know, because that's really the the most consistent thing. You know, as 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 we talk about, you know, uh, what's the state of jazz? Jazz seems to just keep on going. It, it, you know, the other shoe hasn't fallen. I feel like sometimes we always wait for that other shoe to fall. Um, uh, but if history points to anything, I mean, I think it's it hasn't. So that's that's gives me good confidence that maybe it won't. Do you think it'll be mainstream ever again? Uh no. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I mean something would would drastically need to change. We would have to to drastically change how we take in entertainment. You know. Um you know, it it would it would take a a serious shift uh in our culture cuz you know, when when jazz was in its heyday, when it when it was most popular, I mean, it was everywhere. You know, if you turned on a commercial in the 30s or in the 40s, I mean, they were swinging to the jingle. Um Game shows, they all had big bands, you know. There's, you know, the, the TV shows, they all had big bands. Um, it, you know, you would just run into jazz. You would run into swing, you know, without even no, realizing it, you know. You know, the you know the the cigarette commercials done by doctors, cats were tipping in the background. <laughs> you know, it's like, but now we don't have that, you know. I, I um, so... For it to become mainstream, um, it would need that sort of like cultural shift, which I don't know if that's going to happen. But I, I don't think um, jazz necessarily needs that to to um, you know to sustain itself or to survive, quote unquote. Okay. So, which artists that are coming up, especially from you as a professor, mm -hmm. should I be looking out for that you think is this going to be, Taryn or Sharon or? Oh man. I don't know. It's so unpredictable. There's a, you know, there's there's I mean, I hear I hear young musicians all the time either on Facebook or or Instagram or checking them out, you know, YouTube and and it's just it's amazing how well they play. The thing that I'm concerned with 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 younger musicians is is um how do they sustain that hunger or how do they sustain it's about sustaining the the you know their drive and sustaining their their artistic hunger because music abil ability is one thing but you know some of these mus younger musicians you know i don't want to call them out by name but i, I wonder how they're going to sound in 10 years if they're going to still be that far ahead of the curve or you know, are they just going to be like, you know, or will everybody else have a chance to catch up? Will they just be like regular cats? You know, so whenever I hear like a child prodigy, somebody coming out at, you know, 12 years old, you know, just like tearing up the, you know, whatever instrument they're on, you know, just like doing incredible things. I'm just like, that's incredible. 
And then I look up, you know, 20 years later and they're just like, you know, they play great, but everybody else just gets a chance to catch up. You know, so it's just like I, 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 I wonder, you know, and I'm hopeful for them because I want, I want there to be someone that just like blows the bell curve at 30. You know, that blows the bell curve. That's just like doing just, you know, I mean, listen, Charlie Parker recorded Coco at 24 years old, 20, you know, mm-hmm. in his mid 20s. Ain't no one, you know, doing that yet. You know, I agree. I mean, all the conditions are right. It's just like the recipe just hasn't been there yet or it hasn't gotten together, you know. So, you know, there's some incredible players. There's some incredible musicians. You know, it's just I don't know if anyone's going to be that pivotal for that long, you know. And even Bird, I mean, his career, he started to get real props like towards the end of the 40s you know then he then he unfortunately checked out in in 55 so it's really short career you know yes that I, I mean agree. even even train you know he got started later he was like almost 30 years old when he joined miles band in 55 so you know and and he only had like a you know a, a 10 year but what he did in that time you know, completely just reshaped the music and blew the bell curve. And just like, you know, people still kind of like trying to figure that out and reach, you know, what he was going to and try to carry on that legacy if they can even just reach what he was doing while he was here. Um, So with, you know, a lot of younger musicians, I just, you know, I, I, I just sit and wait. You know, I'm, I'm very interested to see what they're going to sound like, you know, 10 years later, because, you know, to my ear, some of them sound like their age. It's incredible. And I love it. You know, there's nothing I like than more than hearing a young person really, really be able to play, but they still sound young. Yes. You know what I mean? And I'm just excited to see where they're going to go, you know, in the next 10 years. And even if they're still playing jazz in 10 years, that's another variable. Yeah. And, and, um, a lot of times, um, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard. You gotta you gotta really really love this music. You gotta really really love it, man. You gotta really just, you know. Okay. So, one other question, completely mm-hmm. different. What is something you hate about the jazz world that you're willing to say? Um, it's uh. The thing that I hate about jazz is that it it aligns itself a little bit too closely with um, a lot of the problems that we have, you know, culturally in this country, um, especially with regards to um, the way we handle race relations, the way we handle equality and equity with gender and international communities and I mean just you know um you know we we kind of buy into and we kind of align ourselves with this uh, with the with a lot of the same problems of of the country you know um I think jazz musicians are some of the most intelligent and forward thinking people you know that I've ever met and um sometimes it's not always reflected in our actions myself included and um that's one of the things. I mean, I think just the nature of our music and the nature of what we do to learn how to play 
and to uh yeah i think i think we can do better and i think jazz musicians are in a position to be leaders just because we we have so much knowledge to really be able to play this music you have to have so much knowledge about folks who are different than yourselves and that's i mean that's a gold mine you know that's a gold mine we need to to kind of like evolve past um you know some of the the antiquated thinking about about the way that we deal with with folks who are different from us. Okay, that I give you. Well, sir, before we go, you know we like to give a shout out and show our respects to artists who came before us. So I'm going to tell you an instrument and two artists. Choose one and tell us why, okay? Oh, boy. Okay, here we go. On trumpet, Wallace Ronnie or Art Farmer? Woo! Man. Start off with a rough. Um, I'm gonna say, although Wallace should be known by everybody in the world, I'm gonna say Art Farmer because I think a lot of times his his playing flies under the radar, and, and some of the work that he did with Gigi Grice is just it's incredible. I love it. I I stumbled onto it just kind of like getting into records, and I found Art Farmer, and I started getting into his records, and and there's still some of my favorite writing and and very inspirational for me in terms of like how I write for small group and, and his playing is just super soulful art farmer. Okay. On saxophone. Oh boy. Sonny Rollins, Dexter Gordon. Oh man. You're killing me. (laughs) Oh boy. All right. I need something to measure this by. Okay. Sonny Rollins is by far probably one of the most creative improvisers in history. And creative just because he knows so much. So it's not necessarily that he just pulls things out of thin air, but he uses his wealth of knowledge in very creative ways. However, Dexter Gordon is the cat that really inspired me to like want to play tenor. Okay. Dexter Gordon, Dexter Gordon is like, that's like, that's like family. Dexter Gordon is like family. So I'm going to have to go with Dex. Dex is my man. Wasn't expecting that one. Okay. So on base, we use, yeah, we'll use my favorite two to compare. Oh no. Christian McBride or Esperanza Spartan? Woo! Ugh. You know, Esperanza is so, in addition, just being an incredible force. And I, I think I, I think her, her musicianship gets overlooked only because she was so important culturally to the music and what it meant, you know, of, of, of what a jazz musician looked like and who a jazz musician was and where they came from and, you know, what... you. Know, she was important. There, I mean, it's definite, definitely pivotal. Her existence was definitely pivotal in music. Um, but again, McBride, that's the sound of, you know, that's what got me interested in the jazz. You know, seeing somebody, you know, and, it, and exactly that reason. You know, McBride was somebody that was, uh, somebody that I looked up to that was close to my age range. It was like, it's only a little bit older than I am, you know. And it's somebody playing with all my heroes and playing with all these greats, playing with Joe Henderson, playing with, you know, 
with um with with Winton playing with you know you know Johnny Griffin all these cats right and um um so yeah McBride McBride was my Esperanza okay so you're going with McBride okay McBride man Woo. I'm keys. And he's swinging too. Oh my God. Oh, he swings. I can tell he you a swing. story on that guy. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I'm keys. Yay. My, mi amigo. Que pasa? He's always Diego. Hey, man. Mi hermano. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm keys. Horse Silver or Hank Jones? Woo. Horace is funky. Horace is funky. And, and there's so much romance to his writing. There's so, I mean, there's such a, there's such an, a story. Hank Jones is like, you know, he's like everything that you want to hear in a piano player. <laughs> That's tough. I, I, I'll probably have to lean with Horace Silver again, because I think, so much of his uh in, in in piano playing i think it's a it's a lock you know I, I i love listening to both of them i would say horace just because you know i love the way that um that he puts together um bands you know the rhythm section the piano play all the musicians in the band you know it, it really feels like a quintet it really feels like five pieces like chamber music it's not just the melody and then the rhythm section is just kind of like keeping time mindlessly behind a melody going, you know, there's like interaction and it's been really inspirational for me as a writer and as a ranger, listening to how he puts together such a big sound with, with, you know, only five pieces, Horace. Okay. And drums, we're going to go with Ray Barreto or mm. Armando Santa Maria. Woo! Oh man. I'm gonna have to go with Ray Barreto. I have to go with Ray Barreto, man. The pocket is just like, you know, the pocket is so deep and 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 I like the way he sounds with tenor players. <laughs> Being a tenor player, just you have to love that, man. You have to love that. It's just, it's, it's incredible. Um, you know, and, and there's a certain place that every instrument I think plays in the time. Mm -hmm. And whenever I hear Ray Barreto on, on any recordings, I mean, he's sensitive to that. I think I need to find out more about him, but I, I, I'm almost convinced that he played a number of instruments. He did. That is true. Because, um, because he has an understanding of of the instrument from the inside, not necessarily just like an, an outward kind of like interaction with, oh, well, I played with trumpet players, I played with saxophone players, I played with piano players. You know, it's just like he understands the instruments from the inside, and that's why his pocket is so strong. You know, that's that's what um, made Lester Young such a, a great, um, you know, dancer. That's what made him, you know, that's what made his phrasing so so good is because he started off in drums. You know, Coleman Hawkins, you know, started off as a string player. You know, that's why his his sound is so capturing, you know. So, Ray Barreto. Okay. 
And just one more. Just curious. John Coltrane or Joe Henderson? Oh. Just curious. Oh, boy. They both ask you to go on tour with them. And you have to choose one. That's tough. I mean, Joe... I mean, they're so similar. They're so similar just in the in the way that they their approach, their, you know. Well, here's the thing I say about them. They're, they're similar, but they're very different. Like Joe Henderson, you know, the way he thinks about ideas, he's very specific. He draws very, very specific conclusions about musical ideas. And as a result, you know, um, he has very specific ideas that are you know, very identifiable when you hear him play it. Train will take one idea and just turn it all inside out and around. He'll play a thousand different ways. So like what I say is like Joe Henderson has a million things that he plays one way and Train has one thing that he plays a million different ways. <laughs> so it's interesting, you know, and, and I get, and both of them have informed my playing so much just in, in the way that I deal with, um, compositions and and um and and band you know like Joe's records man I mean the bands that he puts together and the bands I would have liked to hear some of these blue note bands like just on a gig like I wish there were more live records with some of these blue note bands like the real McCoy band like with Joe Henderson and and McCoy and and Elvin and Ron Carter I, like I'd like to hear you know if there were bootlegs like a week of that band playing somewhere you know, the village, some, oh, you know, there's, but, um, I think train gets the slight edge just because I like the way that he puts together a band. Like his, he's changed the way, you know, like the, the, the saxophone quartet with tenor on the, you know, the tenor as the main voice, tenor and soprano. I mean, he, he kind of established that, that, that genre, that sound. And I think almost inevitably, whenever a tenor player leads a band, that's one of the huge reference points. They're hearing Train's band. They're hearing that sound of that quartet as something that they try to, you know, emulate. they try to encapsulate. Okay. Well, could you tell the people your website, your social media, how to find you, et cetera? Sure. My website is diegorivedajazz.com. And um, almost all, if not all, of my social media handles are the same. Diego Rivera Jazz. Um, uh, I am playing at a club in Ann Arbor on Saturday called the Blue Llama. That's April 10th. And there's two shows. There's a 7 o'clock show with a reduced um, capacity following all uh, COVID-19 uh, protocols. And if... Um, you don't choose to come out or if, um, you know, you, you can because you're too far away. The 8.30 set will be live streamed via, uh, um, will be live streamed via Mandolin. So you'll be able to, if you miss the show, you'll be able to log in and, and catch the replay of the show. Okay. But yes, sir. <laughs> well, thank you for coming. <laughs> Means a lot. And sir, this is Leanne. I mean, everyone, this is Leanna from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good night. 
That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>